0: Sometime in the summer of 1605, King James I's chief minister, Robert Cecil, discovered evidence of a modest Catholic rising brewing in the English Midland counties around Warwickshire. So far at the History Café, we've discovered, however, that Cecil badly needed something much more spectacular than a paltry regional rising. He needed to be able to reveal some truly bold and threatening treason by the Catholics so that he could bully a recalcitrant parliament into shape. Silence his many enemies at court and make a difficult and abusive king dance to his tune. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk, usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank.
1: And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right
0: to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens.
1: For decades, Robert Cecil's father had brilliantly used evidence of real but simple treasons to fabricate what appeared to be much more elaborate and shocking plots, attempts to assassinate Queen Elizabeth and overthrow her government. It had served his purposes very well, especially to bully Parliament. So between the summer and autumn of 1605, it looks as though Robert Cecil put all the pieces in place for a new spectacular, one his father would have been proud of. Last time at the History Café, we saw how on the 28th of July, 1605, Cecil postponed the meeting of Parliament that was due in October. Now it would meet on the 5th of November instead. He told his government colleagues there were, quotes many weighty reasons for the prorogation. Too secret to commit to paper. It seems that he was at this time making preparations to reveal the extraordinary plot he'd been fabricating in Westminster, based around a simple Catholic rising in the Midlands and timed for the beginning of the new parliamentary session.
0: As we've seen in this series at the History Café, the evidence that most of the books used to recount the gunpowder plot comes from the government's official account, which was published in fact before the plotter's trial. It included two of the so-called confessions that had been extorted in the Tower by torture or the threat of it. None of it is in any way historically reliable, and we've been treating it for what it is, a piece of government propaganda. Instead, we've been piecing the story together from a much wider range of other sources and contexts. Fourth of November was the day before Parliament was due to meet. According to the government account, the Lord Chamberlain, the Earl of Suffolk, who was responsible for making the arrangements, went on a tour of inspection of the Houses of Parliament According to this official account, he found nothing except a pile of old timber in a storeroom under the House of Lords, and what they described as a tall and desperate fellow standing in one corner.
1: But the king, who in the government version is always given the part of the brilliant sleuth, told him to go back and check the storeroom again. This time, however, the search was not done by the earl, but by the keeper of Westminster Palace. Now this particular man, Sir Thomas Nivet, was an old associate of Cecil's. Aha! He was not only Cecil's mistress's uncle, but also the long-serving MP and magistrate for the little town of Westminster, which the Cecil's ran pretty much as a private fiefdom. Nivet, in fact, lived at what is now 10 Downing Street.
0: Anyway, this man took along only what the official account describes as, quote, a small party of men. Never told who these men were, we might guess that they were household servants or guards of some kind. It was now nearly midnight. Well, according to the government account, they came across the same, quote, tall and desperate fellow who was now standing outside. In his letter of 9th of November to the English ambassador in Spain, Cecil says the man was, quote, booted and spurred, meaning he was ready for a quick getaway on his horse. He was also carrying a lantern. Well, they now arrested and searched him. The official account says that they found three matches, quotes, and all the other instruments fit for blowing up the powder. In fact, Cecil wrote to the English ambassador of Spain that they found, quotes powder for a train, enough to lay a trail which would burn for half an hour while the tall and desperate fellow made his getaway. He also had, according to this letter, a piece of match and a tinderbox. The man said his name was John Johnson. Later turned out to be Guy Fawkes. <laughs>
1: So, on the 4th of November 1605, what we're told by the official government account is a small party of men goes to look in the storeroom under the House of Lords and outside it they arrest Guy Fawkes, apparently with a match, a tinderbox and enough powder to lay a fuse that will burn for half an hour so he can get away. Now, according to the official government account, this small party of men, while holding Guy Fawkes, set about inspecting the storeroom and what they find is a pile of wood. In fact, among the government documents are two accounts that say there were thousands of pieces of wood. Fawkes' confession, produced under torture, which we have to regard as just another government account, says that iron bars and stones had also been piled on top, apparently to make a better explosion. Nonetheless, in the published government account, the small party of men, as well as holding the tall and desperate Fawkes captive, now quickly shift all the iron bars and stones and the thousands of pieces of wood and bundles of faggots and underneath discovered 36 barrels of gunpowder. Or maybe 32. The government could never quite get its story straight. So Guy Fawkes is dragged before the king and the grisly process of torture begins.
0: Well, so goes the official account. Only someone who knew nothing at all about historical reliability or about ballistics would believe a word of it. Setting aside the superpowers of the small search party, not only to hold on to their tall and desperate prisoner, but also to shift thousands of heavy objects within a few minutes, it's simply not credible that an experienced mercenary soldier like Guy Fawkes would build a bomb such as this. As we've seen, the parliament that was due to meet on the 5th of November 1605 had been repeatedly prorogued since 7th of July the year before. There were those who believed that King James would never in fact hold another parliament, and there was no telling when or if it would meet again. We've also discovered that the ritual of the monarch attending the opening of Parliament only dates from November 1852. Until that time, monarchs only attended newly elected parliaments, not old ones, prorogued ones, like the one due to meet on the 5th of November. So even if the Parliament ever reconvened, there was no reason at all to expect the King to attend. It's true he might turn up to address MPs and peers about some pet scheme or other, as he had in the previous year, but there was no knowing if or when he would. But, and here's the thing, gunpowder goes off. I mean, it goes damp and rotten. It's an unstable mixture that doesn't stay usable for very long. So under this pile of wood and iron bars and stones, the 36 barrels, or was it 32, would rapidly have decayed and become useless. The bomb would have to be built and rebuilt every time there was a possibility that the king just might be going to show up the decayed barrels would have somehow to be got out from under the pile of wood and iron and stones and shipped away. Uh, That is, in a street full of shops and taverns, in the heart of a borough, crawling as we've seen with Cecil's informers. Well, the whole idea is, as historian Godfrey Anstruther put it long ago, picturesque but not convincing.
1: And the problem with the evidence is just as perplexing. Let's leave aside the various conflicting versions of the stories Cecil and his government put out in the following days – You can hunt through the documents, but astonishingly, you can never find the crucial document that says whether anybody actually saw the gunpowder. The official government count says that 36 or 32 barrels of gunpowder were there. But unaccountably, none of the search party was ever named, except its leader, Sir Thomas Nivet, And not one of them ever seems to have made a statement recording what he actually saw. Other witnesses recorded carrying the wood into the storeroom, but they'd somehow failed to spot all the barrels of gunpowder they were dumping it all on top of. Lords and Commons met in the chamber above the storeroom later on the 5th of November, and they were told that there were 36 barrels of live gunpowder right there, directly underneath their feet. Well, the sitting was, perhaps understandably, a brief one. Apparently, however, Not a single one of the peers or the MPs was curious enough to step outside and take a look for himself. None of the many foreign ambassadors the government informed were taken to see. Mysteriously, the government completely overlooked a golden opportunity to condemn the plotters publicly by showing off its prize exhibit. The fact is that other than the two so-called confessions extracted from Guy Fawkes and from Thomas Winter by torture, or at the very least the threat of torture, There's no actual evidence at all that the gunpowder ever
0: existed. Well, or hardly any. To be fair, on the 7th of November, nearly a tonne of gunpowder was delivered to the government arsenal at the Tower of London and logged in as being, quote, from out the vault of the Parliament House, laid in place for the blowing up of the said house. Aha! So it's true after all. But all is not necessarily as it seems. The man in charge of the tower was Cecil's hardest-bitten anti-Catholic intelligencer of the lot, William Wade. He, as we've seen, had been an accomplice of the Cecils and their fabrications for decades, and he'd been in on Robert Cecil's preparations at least since his appointment in charge of the tower in August 1605. So who knows whether we should believe the entry in the log. Intriguingly, Wade's men at the tower recorded the powder as being, quote, decayed and requiring remixing and useless It lends credibility, but also confusion, to the reference. Maybe it tells us that Fawkes, who was a veteran mercenary soldier of many years' experience, was completely incompetent with gunpowder. Maybe. Is that why he was looking desperate? Or maybe it's just that Wade's own men had produced a ton of harmless old powder from somewhere as part of Cecil's attempt to create the impression of a Catholic plot. We simply can't know either way. But the reference at the Tower of London really doesn't prove very much. So... Can we conclude that there was no Catholic plot in November 1685? No, not at all. There's plenty of evidence that there was a Catholic plot. There are statements taken from literally dozens of witnesses. But it was not a plot about gunpowder.
1: The sober fact. Is that the government's allegation that a ton of gunpowder had been laid and was ready to blow up King and Parliament on the 5th of November 1605 is supported by not a single historical document that passes a rudimentary test of reliability? Despite the supposed evidence of a major coup, the government didn't even bother to post any increased security around Parliament or the King. Instead, they began a few desultory inquiries in the neighbourhood and told everyone to. Light bonfires in celebration. Literally. That night, the order went out to light fires to celebrate the saving of the king, his family, the lords and the commons. At a safe distance, you suppose, from the 36 barrels of gunpowder, which was still under the House of Lords, or was it 32? The government could never make up its mind. It seems a reasonable conclusion from the government's apparent unconcern about security at Westminster on the 5th of November that there never had been any real threat to James I or his Parliament.
0: In the starkest possible contrast to the government's wholly unsupported tale about gunpowder, however, there were literally dozens and dozens of witnesses who testified that someone raised a three-day Catholic rising centred around Warwickshire, time for the start of Parliament. It tallies exactly with the preparations we've seen Cecil making from the summer of 1605 when he first became aware that some kind of Catholic plot was brewing. It also tallies exactly with the kind of rebellion we would have predicted, having looked at an earlier history cafe at the previous century and a half of English risings. The most common, by far, was a regional rising aimed to negotiate with the government on a mix of religious and secular issues. And that's exactly what was going on in November 1605.
1: On the 5th of November, someone mounted a raid on Warwick Castle looking for horses. On the 7th of November, weapons and gunpowder were taken from the vacant Hewell Grange, 20 miles away. Only one of the plotters accused of trying to blow Parliament up confessed at the trial, and that was Sir Everard Digby. What he confessed to, we've seen, was not a crazy bomb under the House of Lords, but that he'd raised some horsemen and they'd ridden across the Midlands for and this is the important thing, freedom from all manner of slavery and an end to the two most unpopular taxes, wardships and monopolies. But Warwickshire was drenched in heavy, insistent rain at the start of November 1605 and Digby's rebels couldn't raise much support. Every time they tried to get more men, even from local relations, they were angrily sent packing. The rising was a hopeless failure. Even the government had to concede that Digby never got together more than 50 men. Perhaps it had all been triggered prematurely when it became obvious that Cecil and his intelligences were on to the plot.
0: The Privy Council's immediate perhaps even panicky, response to this feeble, sodden Warwickshire Rising contrasts starkly with its limp-wristed reaction to the murderous plot it claimed to have found at the heart of Westminster. They commissioned none other than the Earl of Devonshire, the crack commander who recently put down a bloody, long-running rebellion in Ireland, to raise an army and march on the Midlands. Historian Mark Nichols discovered that men with military experience rushed to court to volunteer and quickly Devonshire commanded a sizeable force. That was never required. The High Sheriff of Worcestershire, with a small force of armed men, caught up with what was left of the Warwickshire Rising on the eighth of November, sixteen o five. By then, the last few rebels were holed up in Holbeach House, a smart new build near Dudley, just over the border in Staffordshire. The government account claimed that this little knot of men had ridden a hundred and forty miles or so from Westminster as soon as they heard of Fox's capture. Well, it's just possible. If they'd somehow had pre-prepared relays of horses standing by and had all been skilled horsemen, they could have got there in a day. Doing it on normal horses would have taken more like four. Either way, there's no independent evidence at all that the other plotters had ever been in Westminster in November 1685. seems on the face of it much more likely that they'd been in the Midlands all along, taking part in the Warwickshire Rising.
1: The High Sheriff himself cowered behind a wall while his men stormed the whole beach house. They shot four men dead, including Robin Catesby and Thomas Percy, who were apparently killed by a single bullet. A handful of rebels were taken alive, including Ambrose Rookwood and Thomas Winter. Rookwood was suffering burns, and the government later claimed he'd been drying gunpowder in front of a fire. Unsurprisingly, he'd been caught in an explosion. Winter was so badly injured in the shootout that he couldn't use his right arm. Though that didn't stop him, as we've seen, supposedly writing out and signing a long, long confession just a fortnight later. Sir Everard Digby and others were tracked down and rounded up soon afterwards. All of these men had been on the list issued by the Chief Justice back on the 6th of November, even before Guy Fawkes had been tortured. Cecil's government had clearly known about them all along.
0: Now, here at the History Café what we're doing is no more than attempting to clear away as many unhistorical assumptions as we can and try some ideas out, taking a broad and careful look around at the evidence and its context. Perhaps the Warwickshire Rising and the Gunpowder Under Parliament were, as most accounts of the plot assume, two parts of one genuine conspiracy. But in the light of the way the Cecils and their intelligence service had fabricated a long series of entrapments over the previous 40 years, and in the lack of any reliable evidence whatever for a genuine conspiracy to blow Parliament up, it seems to us, let's say, much more likely that once Robert Cecil discovered the Warwickshire Rising, he fabricated alongside it the plot to blow James up in Parliament. But it's no more possible to prove than the gunpowder plot itself. Cecil certainly had the means, the opportunity, and the motive. He badly needed something spectacular to bully Parliament and cow his many enemies at court. Fawkes and the other plotters may have believed they were working for a genuine conspiracy. Most of those who investigated it, and hence also the historians who've studied it, may have believed it was a real investigation. There may even have been real barrels of gunpowder under Parliament, but whether there were or not, or whether this was ever the intention of Catesby, Digby, Winter and the others, or whether they were talked into it or tricked by Cecil's intelligences, we simply can't know. There's just no sure proof either way. Only a deeply unreliable government account, some statements taken under the threat of torture, and a mass of contextual evidence. When he came to give an account of the trials in 1857, the historian David Jardine found he was just working blind. There is no state trial since the date of Henry VIII so barren of facts, he wrote exasperated, and so totally devoid of reality. It was the only trial he could find in early modern British history, where the sole surviving account was the government's officially printed one, which he pointed out, quote, was published not for the purpose of conveying accurate information, but of suppressing and colouring the truth, and of circulating such a version of the story as suited the objects of the government. Well, quite right.
1: The implication of all the broader context we've talked about here at the History Café suggests to us that the gunpowder part of the plot was either partly or wholly a fabrication. In contemporary vocabulary, a practice, on the part of Cecil's intelligences. It was an injustice perpetrated by a brutal and repressive regime. And on the 5th of November 1605, the injustice and repression was just beginning. If you've any remaining doubt about whether Cecil had largely invented the gunpowder plot, you have to say that it's largely dispelled by the cynical use to which he put it for months afterwards. On the 8th of November, after severe torture, Fawkes supposedly accused some of the Warwickshire rebels of being involved in the gunpowder part of the plot. To be accurate, he took a paper describing digging a tunnel and setting the explosion, and tried to sign it in a shaky hand. Later, he supposedly added more names, saying they were involved too, in quotes, this horrible conspiracy, but not saying how. His so-called confession, of course, proves nothing, except that Cecil's men were torturing him to
0: tell the story that they wanted. Even so, on the 9th of November, Fawkes' confession was triumphantly read out in Parliament, and King James delivered his speech, giving himself the credit for solving the whole plot. A fortnight later, Winter probably didn't sign the so-called confession he physically cannot have written, since he couldn't use his arm. Then the government rushed it to the king's printers, along with Fawkes's so-called confessions, as well as the king's self-regarding speech in Parliament, and the government's tendentious account of the plot's discovery. And then they published the whole pile as, quote, the king's book. The only thing it tells the historian is that Cecil had a story he was extremely anxious everyone should hear.
1: But Cecil had already moved on. On the seventh of November, after the tortures had begun, Fawkes apparently confessed that Sir Walter Raleigh was part of the conspiracy. All the people in the world. The explorer and privateer Raleigh was still in the Tower after his arrest and conviction on the slenderest of evidence for a plot to assassinate James in 1603. He'd had nothing to do with this rising, but Cecil clearly had his own reasons for wanting to nail him. Cecil's former friendship with Raleigh. He'd sent his son for a period to be educated at Raleigh's house. Ouch. Adds a particularly bitter taste to his treatment of the man. Raleigh remained reasonably comfortably in the tower and outlived Cecil. He was finally executed in 1618 after a completely unrelated chain of events.
0: Well, it wasn't just Raleigh that Cecil was after. In the course of November 1685, two prominent Catholics, the Lords Mordaunt and Sturton, were thrown into the Tower on the flimsy allegation that they hadn't been intending to come to Parliament on the 5th of November. Well, we now know that dozens of peers, in fact, including Robert Cecil himself, had taken out what were called proxies, permissions to be absent that day. A third Catholic peer, Lord Montague, was also arrested, partly because he, well, he once employed forks as a servant to wait at table. Cecil seriously needed to associate some peers with the plot to give it some slight colour of credibility arresting these three smacks of desperation, also of a vendetta against Catholics. Montague was eventually released without trial at the end of 1606, but Sturton was fined 6,000 marks, that's £4,000, perhaps something like £800,000 today, and only released in 1608. Mordaunt was fined 10,000 marks, that's £6,666, and was never released. In 1609 he died in the Fleet Prison.
1: And sometime in February or early March 1606, a very respectable Catholic woman, Anne Vaux, who was said to have friends among Catholic Jesuits, was arrested, quote, with some rough usage and thrown into the tower and interrogated. She was eventually transferred to house arrest and released in April. But her arrest was only one part of Cecil's pogrom against the Jesuit priests. On the 20th of January 1606, magistrates with very detailed instructions from Robert Cecil proceeded to Hindlip House in Worcestershire and occupied it. A hundred armed men surrounded it. Inside, four days later, they finally found Nicholas Owen, who designed and built many of the hiding places Catholic priests used as they moved around the country. But the search party didn't stop there, and after eight more days two Jesuit priests, Fathers Henry Garnet and Edward Oldcorn, crawled out from the woodwork, literally. They said they could have held out much longer if only they'd had a loo.
0: Well, it was against the law of England to torture a man who was disabled, and Nicholas Owen, the skilled carpenter who'd been making these priests' hiding places, well, he'd been left crippled by torture the last time he'd been in the tower. Cecil's men tortured him anyway, and then claimed he committed suicide when his stomach ruptured. Suddenly, on the 8th of March 1606, Father Garnet, quote, confessed. It looks very much as though he'd been tortured too. Garnet's Jesuit biographer, Philip Caraman, claims that when the King discovered that Garnet had been tortured, he ruled his confession inadmissible as evidence for the forthcoming trial. Well, Cecil's torturer, William Wade, now had no option but to go back and find other ways to break his man. Garnet's servant and friend, Owen, was already dead, so Wade now mercilessly racked three of his other friends. These were the other Jesuit priests, Father Oldcorn, his servant Ralph, and the servant of the Volks family, John Grisold. While they were going through their agony, Garnet was cross-questioned 23 times. Carman says that when he too was again threatened with torture, that was on Good Friday, 24th of March, 1606. He quotes, Bade them set down what they would have me confess, and so far as it concerned, only my own credit, I would acknowledge it without torture. Caraman claims that they tortured him anyway, and his sudden decision to confess makes it look likely. It seems likely that both Garnet and Old Corn knew about the Warwickshire Rising. There isn't a shred of respectable evidence, or historically reliable evidence, to link any of these men with the Gunpowder plot. Regardless, Garnet and Olcorn were found guilty of treason and horribly executed. But these weren't the only men Cecil wanted to destroy.
1: Having, it seems to us, fabricated the gunpowder plot, Cecil used it to launch a pogrom against leading Catholics and Jesuit priests but he was, if anything, more anxious to use the plot to destroy his enemies at court. As we've seen, Cecil's position was extremely weak at court and a strong motivation for inventing the plot was to get rid of his rivals. Now, the easiest to deal with was Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland, one of the Privy Council. Just hours after Cecil's men had apparently revealed the gunpowder plot, if not, as we've seen, the gunpowder itself, Northumberland was placed under house arrest. On the 27th of November, he was sent to the Tower. It was easy to associate Northumberland with the plot, since he was cousin and employer of one of the alleged plotters, Thomas Percy. The evidence brought against Northumberland included that he'd had supper with Percy on the 4th of November, and that he'd broken the law by reading the King's horoscope, which incidentally said that James would live a
0: long life. Well, if you're thinking this all sounds a bit like a tin-pot dictatorship, you'd be absolutely right. Of course, Cecil's real case against Northumberland was that the Earl had been an old associate of Cecil's bitter rival, the Earl of Essex, and had been in contact with King James in Scotland long before Cecil had. Northumberland had even got James to make vague promises of toleration for English Catholics. After he'd become king, James had made Northumberland a privy councillor. But, well, Northumberland was an irritating man. By 1605, he made himself widely unpopular, so he was easy to get rid of. Eventually, on 27th June 1606, he was summarily tried in a packed star chamber where tiered seating had been especially erected for the spectators. The Attorney-General boldly and openly lied that the Earl was only under suspicion because other conspirators had fingered him. Well, they hadn't. But without any material evidence, the earl was fined £30,000, an unimaginably vast sum in 1606, and locked in the tower until 1623.
1: But the Earl of Northumberland was not Cecil's primary target at court. That was the Earl of Northampton. This earl, as we saw at an earlier history cafe in this series, was a Catholic who'd been a confidant of King James's mother, Mary Queen of Scots. James was said never to pass a day without recalling his mother's death, and it had been Robert Cecil's father who'd fabricated the entrapment that had led to her execution. Northampton had also been a close friend of Robert Cecil's greatest rival, the Earl of Essex. Northampton had somehow managed to survive Essex's rising, as well as several of the Cecil's previous entrapments. By 1605, he was very close to the king, and was without doubt Cecil's most difficult rival at court.
0: The plot certainly wrong-footed Northampton. He was obliged to make a speech at the plotter's trials. We've only got an edited version, but it's clear in his careful, even contorted English, that the Earl was threading gingerly between the shoals. A very skilled orator, he reminded his listeners that King James, at his first coming, had indeed made a show of toleration towards Catholics. But then, continued the Earl, this early optimism, quote, hath been used as an instrument of art to shadow false approaches, till the Trojan horse might be brought within the walls of Parliament with a belly stuffed with hellish gunpowder. You can hear the Earl speaking in clever and complex ambiguities. His description of the false approaches and the Trojan horse can be read in more than one way including a veiled accusation that Cecil had invented the whole gunpowder business himself. The Earl concluded that had there been, quotes, any one green leaf of concession to the Catholics, the plot might never have occurred. Veiled within all this rhetorical verbiage, it was another attack on Cecil. Cecil was not
1: going to let the Earl off with making ingenious and crafty speeches. In March 1606, the Earl, who was, don't forget, a Catholic, was forced to take a prominent role in the prosecution of the Jesuit priest, Father Garnet. It would have been exquisitely uncomfortable for him. In fact, he was actually made to publish a much-expanded version of his speech at Garnet's trial. It appeared in English, French, Latin and Italian, and was sent to crowned heads across Europe. In it, Northampton finds himself arguing that loyalty to the Pope should not override the bond between subject and king. Although that was what almost all English Catholics effectively believed at the time, it wasn't something a prominent member of the Roman Church much wanted to put down in print.
0: But however uncomfortable Cecil made Northampton's life, he'd undoubtedly met his match. The Earl had survived accusation and imprisonment before, and he was not going to be defeated this time. At no point in this humiliating series of speeches does the Earl ever admit the truth of the gunpowder plot. He simply and carefully states the government's case and leaves his hearers to decide whether or not the evidence stacks up. The damage to Northampton's standing is difficult to gauge. Seven years later, he was still having to take legal action against rumours that he'd been involved in some way in the gunpowder plot.
1: So Cecil had bloodily tortured and executed the plotters and used his fabrications to damage his enemies at court. When we looked at the whole series of similar plots, either fabricated or exaggerated by Cecil's father, we found that they too had been used to gain an advantage at court and put pressure on the monarch. But the principal target of Cecil's father's plots had always been Parliament, bullying it into doing what he wanted by raising the spectre of some imaginary danger to the realm. And of course, Cecil's brilliant coup de théâtre in 1605 had been to take a modest regional Catholic rising and turn it into a direct and thunderous threat to Parliament itself, to the very lives of every single MP
0: and peer. The last session of Parliament in 1604 had been an unmitigated and humiliating disaster for Cecil. So, did the threat of 36 barrels of gunpowder, or was it 32?, make the Parliament of 1605 any more amenable? And did the widely unpopular Cecil find himself finally respected by James and his courtiers and the wider public? Well, we'll see in our last conversation in this series at the next History Cafe. <laughs> For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
1: Or contact us on social media at History Café Pod.